0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we've talked many times on this program about the Chinese blockbuster Wolf Warrior 2. And for those of you not familiar with Wolf Warrior 2, it was just a phenomenon this uh, last year where it earned 800 million dollars at the box office and that's expected to cross a billion dollars with some of the redistribution rights that are coming in the following years. And then it's going to really set off a whole new genre of filmmaking in in China, really focusing on Africa and the Belt and Road, and it's really highlighting this new effort that China is is making is undertaking to create global blockbuster films. They've even submitted Wolf Warrior 2 for Academy Award nomination, uh, or at least their consideration for the Chinese entry, so it really shows you that China's stepping out onto the global stage in a very big way, in particular, a lot of people may know that the Chinese have invested billions of dollars in Hollywood. But now there's also an effort to expand China's cultural influence through filmmaking along the Belt and Road. And that is going to be our focus today.
1: Yes, it's, this is very interesting. And it's, you know, it's a complicated picture because China, on the one hand, as you say, uh, China is expanding and investing in conventional Hollywood you know, filmmaking, film, film economies. Um, but at the same time, the Chinese film industry works a bit different from the West, and there's a there's a closer relationship with the state, and so you can also look at these movies as sending you know approved messages or you know approved portrayals of China. Um, and the fact that these movies are portraying the Belt and Road, different different kind of stops along the Belt and Road route makes them doubly interesting, both as, as new kinds of entertainment business, but also as the way that China is presented itself. So I discussed this uh, with Wall Street Journal reporter Eric Schwarzel, who is busy with a very interesting series on the new Chinese Hollywood, touching on a lot of different issues, including Hollywood personnel now working in China, but also showing how China is using movies to message itself along the Belt and Road.
2: Well, it's hard to ignore China whenever you're covering Hollywood. Over the past... I'd say six or seven years, China has become the the elephant in the room at every studio. I cover the film industry for the Wall Street Journal, and... I've been doing that for about five years, and and in that time we've seen China just become a bigger and bigger force when it comes to how executives make decisions because the Chinese audience has grown so rapidly and become such a source of ticket buying revenue. Um, but what's been interesting in the past uh, couple years, more recently, is how China's film industry has developed and its attempts to replicate Hollywood and replicate Hollywood's success at making. Global blockbusters, um, and so I've sort of shifted a little bit from looking at how China is influencing Hollywood to how Hollywood is influencing China and its growing industry.
1: So you know, one of the reasons we we're speaking with you is the fact that that China is increasingly including some of its geopolitical preoccupations in some of these movies. Um, but maybe before we, we get into that, and especially in, in discussing how Africa shows up, and especially also how the Belt and Road Initiative shows up, I wonder if you could give us a, a brief outline of how the movie industry actually works in China, for specifically how much state money is involved in movie production.
2: Well, there are sort of state players involved at every step of the process, um, uh, filmmakers need to get script treatments or screenplays approved by censors before they can begin production. And then after a movie has wrapped production, the the final cut has to be approved before it can be released in theaters. And most of the distributors in China um, that are putting these movies in theaters are controlled by the state. Um, and anyone who has gone to see a movie in China knows that whenever you're sitting in the theater, one of the first things you see on screen is the logo of SARF which is the, the state organization controlling film and television in the country. So you're right. There, are, um, there is a more pronounced presence um, of state players throughout the production process. But what's been interesting to see is how filmmakers are responding to what they see as state requests or state preferences in terms of what kind of stories they're telling. Every filmmaker I've talked to who has worked in China can tell me what they what will be approved by the state and what won't, and they kind of know just this shorthand that they can all trade in terms of what themes or kinds of characters or kinds of stories they know will be a no go for the for the state censors.
1: So you know what, what I'm what I'm heading towards is to which extent. Uh, some of the some of the messages that we 've seen in a movie like Wolf Warrior Two, for example, which we discussed in an earlier podcast some of the the images of China um is startlingly nationalistic, almost, you know, it's, it strikes a Western view as almost stridently nationalistic. For example, the end, the last shot of Wolf Warrior 2 is essentially this kind of text on the screen saying, you know, warning people that, you know, kind of any, any kind of Chinese who gets mistreated in the rest of the world, the Chinese state will be behind them. So what I'm you know what, what I'm trying to find, or, or to 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 clarify in my mind, is to which extent is this a kind of a externally imposed by the government kind of message, and to which extent are filmmakers in China just also, to do, do, to which extent do they share that kind of patriotism?
2: Um, I'm not sure. Um I would say the filmmakers share that patriotism so much as they know that having those elements in their movie will help it get into theaters. And I think the power of Wolf Warrior Two cannot be overstated. Um, The the sheer blockbuster um, grosses of that movie are going to inspire so many copycats. And I think it is a little bit more complicated than um, uh, someone from the government coming and saying, put X or Y into your movie. Um, And much more filmmakers knowing by reading the tea leaves or just seeing what state government officials respond to and and responding to that. So it seems like I have been told, you know, that there have been conversations between filmmakers and um, government officials where the officials will say things like, well, you know, it would be really great if your movie had a character from Pakistan um, because we're trying to improve relations there. Um, and you also see films being used as a tool of the government whenever they're trying to curry favor with other foreign governments. You saw this um, last year whenever China and India's relationship was sort of coming together in interesting ways, suddenly more Indian films were being led into the country um, and being shown um, in Chinese theaters. So I think it's it's pretty easy once you're once you're over there to see um, that maybe the government isn't issuing these overt directives about what should or shouldn't be in the movie so much as making it clear what they are more likely to approve of.
1: It's so interesting. Um, so in one of your articles, you, you point out that there is a whole kind of mini industry in, in China at the moment of, of movies related to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so I wonder if you could give us a, you know, a few examples of movies that, that are set in or, or, touches or touch on you know, this, this expanded trade route uh, you know, linking China with Europe via Africa
2: absolutely. I mean, I know you and Eric have, have covered so extensively the the economic and the political ramifications of the Belt and Road. But it is interesting to see what the cultural impact will be as well. And the Chinese government has made it very clear that they want a cultural exchange to be part of this new trading route. And to that end, companies have responded. It's almost like the government creates a market demand. And the the companies that are working in China now include things like Shinework Media, which is a production company that until now has really focused on television, but has been developing a full slate of Belt and Road movies, the first of which is a movie called Composer, um, which is a co-production between China and Kazakhstan. And it's the first co-production between the two countries. As you know, Kazakhstan is a pretty crucial partner on the Belt and Road. And whenever President Xi Jinping went to Kazakhstan to discuss the Belt and Road, he had an anecdote in his speech about a composer who had traveled between the two countries several hundred years ago. Um, Lo and behold, there is now a movie being made called Composer about that story that is being developed by both countries and with plans to release it in both countries. Um, So in a way, it's this it's this filmic representation of the kind of partnership these two countries want to start having. And and this company, Shinework, that is releasing Composer, has several other titles in In the pipeline including a movie with Indonesia and one with Iran and when you go to China and you talk to filmmakers they see the Belt and Road countries as essentially a new marketplace for their movies these are a lot of movies that have trouble getting into the US because Western audiences don't respond to them but I think that they see the Belt and Road carve out as essentially a new global market that excludes that that US or um, Western audience
1: One of the most fascinating ones that you that you mentioned, uh, or fascinating for me. Examples of these films that you mentioned in, in one of your articles is uh, in relates to North Africa, um, and it's called China Salesman. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that one.
2: Right, the China Salesman is um, is is really a, a fascinating movie. It stars um, Steven Segal and Mike Tyson among other people. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's definitely probably the most random movie I've ever written about. Um, and it is about Chinese businessmen who uh, go to North Africa to secure a telecommunications contract and along the way save the day in in many ways. Um, This is definitely a lower-quality version of some of Wolf Warrior 2's themes, um, but nonetheless has some very interesting moments. For example, there is a scene where the the Chinese businessmen um, convince an African tribe not to sacrifice a young child and so we're looking at some some extremely stereotypical portrayal here of of african tribes and and this chinese businessman comes in and essentially enlightens them and the the tribe sees the error of their ways um, so it's a real kind of paternalistic portrayal of China in Africa. And of course, there are also a lot of action sequences and fight sequences and, and the kind of action adventure we've come to expect from these kind of Chinese films. What's interesting is the filmmaker who I who I spoke to told me that he had written the film before the Belt and Road Initiative was announced. But it um, the Belt and Road Initiative has sort of inadvertently helped his movie find an audience. Because when he went to um, film markets to sell the title, when he would Explained to buyers what the concept was, that it had this China-Africa element to it, they were very interested, because China is already in their country as part of the Belt and Road. So he has sold this movie for distribution in more than 30 countries along the Belt and Road. Um, Even though it wasn't an overt Belt and Road narrative, it's kind of become one in the new political paradigm.
1: That is so fascinating. The um, what? What do you make of the the portrayal of Africa in these movies? I mean, we had we had, we had a field day unpacking some of the portrayals of of um, of Africa in Wolf Warrior Two, um, and you know, I, I think it, a lot of a lot of African audiences would find some of the portrayals, even in Wolf Warrior Two insulting, um, you know, among others, because it, it completely erases differences between different African countries. It tends to make Africa more of a background to action rather than, you know, kind of investing in the agency of African characters, for example. Um, yeah. You know, what are your impressions of how Africa is, is portrayed in some of these films?
2: Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, especially in, in something like The China Salesman, you you can see definite issues with with just how paternalistic the the portrayal is. And as you said, what a how it just sort of serves as a background um, for a lot of the the Chinese heroism. You know, I think an important thing to point out in general is that a lot of these efforts to insert this kind of political messaging into movies have been have been very clunky so far. Um, the, you had in um the Jackie Chan movie Kung Fu Yoga um this very Bizarre um, exchange of dialogue. It's the movie is about um, Chinese archaeologists teaming up with Indian archaeologists to go on this treasure hunt. It's a it's a kind of a classic Jackie Chan romp. And and early in the film, the Indian archaeologist is trying to. Convince the Chinese archaeologists to come on board to join forces on this treasure hunt, and she says that it would be good. And out of nowhere, she says because it would line up with the country's Belt and Road cooperations. Um, <laughs> and and the Chinese character responds by saying so well said and and it's like oh gosh like no screenwriter wrote that right no one is is bringing this you know 1 trillion dollar trade plan into a Jackie Chan <laughs> comedy um so it's clunky but i think the important thing to remember is um especially among some audiences in china even if i mean kung fu yoga made a ton of money um it sold a ton of tickets and even if that kind of exchange colors the thinking of one percent of the moviegoers who ultimately see it. That's a pretty significant number of people um, at, who are still forming their opinions about China's new role in in these other parts of the parts of the world. So I think it's I think one thing that that. Chinese filmmakers may run into is there, how much of an appetite there will be for these movies in Africa or in parts of Southeast Asia, because I don't know how much audiences there will want to watch Chinese, you know, heroes come in and save the day for them. Um, that's certainly the case with um, this essentially a slate of films that are being developed by China's Ministry of Public Security. Um, I think y- you may have spoken before about Operation Mei Gong, which um, his was out in theaters. I think in 2016, um, and it is about a six. It's a cinematic portrayal of a successful Chinese um, Chinese military mission, and that has inspired the ministry to develop Operation Red Sea, and also later this year they're going to be shooting Operation Somalia, both of which are the cinematic adaptations of successful Chinese military missions that in that case are fully supported by a government entity.
1: And you mentioned in one of your articles that the the filmmaker behind Operation Somalia is the Hollywood filmmaker, Renny Harlan.
2: That's right. Rennie Harlan, who um, really rose to, to prominence in the 1990s, is the director of movies like Uh, Die Hard 2 and Cliffhanger, he um, really flamed out in Hollywood um, with the release of Cutthroat Island, which for a while held the distinction of being the um, biggest flop in Hollywood history. Um, He kind of never really recovered after that until 2014 when he went over to China and was hired to direct the movie Skip Trace which also starred starred Jackie Chan. And Skip Trace, it turned out, was the biggest hit of Rennie Harlan's career. And he hasn't left China since. He has been making movies nonstop. And essentially, producers there hire him to make Chinese movies, but with a Hollywood flair and a Hollywood quality that they can then export around the world, or at least that's the goal. And a movie that he he will start filming, Operation Somalia, in May. And I asked him, I said, you know, it's, it's so interesting that you have a movie here that is being supported, if not financially, then at least, you know, philosophically by the Chinese Ministry of Public Security. I mean, it's like the CIA getting into film production. And he said that it opens so many doors when you have their imprimatur of approval that it allows you, you know, that any um, uh, paperwork that needs to be approved will get approved. The, The ministry even provides you with their own planes and guns and even troops during filming. So if you need, you know, a thousand soldiers to serve as extras in the film, the ministry will provide real soldiers while you're shooting the movie. Um, so that it can be as good as they want it to be.
1: That's amazing. And of course, there's... There is precedence for that in the U.S. I remember Top Gun being, for example, a you know a, a film that was made with the, with cooperation of, of branches of the U.S. military. But this seems like it's taking it to a new level.
2: I think Top Gun is the best analogy, though. I mean, because of course in China there is a long history of propaganda films. They still run nonstop on on state television. Um, but Rennie, the director, told me that his he was told by the ministry that they want to make a fast and furious but with a patriotic message so i think they know that the the especially younger moviegoers have no appetite for this overt you know often anti-japanese propaganda and they want to make it more subtle um they want to make it more thematic rather than polemic
1: that is fascinating Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. It's, it's uh, Eric Schwartzel writes for the Wall Street Journal on film. Um, Eric, if people want to follow what you're reading and what you're writing, um, how can they keep how can they keep up with you?
2: Uh, the easiest way is probably to follow me on Twitter. I post all my articles there, and it's my full name, Eric Schwartzel. Um, but I'm also um, going to be staying on this topic for the foreseeable future. So hopefully, I'll have a lot more to say uh, um, in the coming months.
1: That's fantastic, and we hope to have you back soon to to discuss it further.
0: Thank you. Cobus. what I found so interesting in Eric's comments was the idea that the Chinese are actually creating a market here. And this is something that I think for a lot of people who are not familiar with Chinese content and the way the Chinese are doing it and unfamiliar with Chinese media as a whole might come as a surprise to understand that these are actually very, very big productions that are now being rolled out around the world. So this idea that... This market may not exist today, but it's artificially being created by the Chinese through their investment on Belt and Road and through their global footprint financially. It's absolutely fascinating. I think
1: I really would like to see how um, audiences along the Belton and Road and especially including in Africa, how they react to these movies. Um, you know, do, do you do you think that there is a, a kind of a natural fit for a movie like Wolf Warrior Two in a place like Africa, or do you think it's always going to be a slightly awkward viewing experience for Africans?
0: I think it's going to be very awkward. And to to Eric's point, where you're going to see these lines and this propaganda that's thrown in that is artificial. And again, the Chinese are not very sophisticated in building content for audiences outside of their own home market. Uh, Hollywood understands how to build a a piece of music, a movie, any kind of entertainment asset that can transcend borders. They've been doing it for a hundred years. They've built a global brand around Hollywood because it crosses borders. You see the telenovelas, in uh, from Latin America they too cross borders very well the way that they do it the formulas the storylines the duration of each show and each series the koreans have been brilliant at it at the k wave the chinese not so much and in part because the chinese have such a huge domestic market there is this instinct to cater to it but also to not understand that the type of propaganda that they're used to promoting inside of china just doesn't fly so as eric pointed out when he said you you, you, it was that line you think he said well you know thank god for the belt and road or something like that that's just not natural and that's not the way that people do it and i think they do a lot of that and you heard that in wolf warrior too where there was a lot of these throwaway lines which really felt like they were playing to party ideology in china as opposed to making a good story that would transcend borders so i think it's going to be tough going that said I have a long history of underestimating the Chinese and being proven wrong in many, many instances. So there is an opportunity here for the Chinese to create content that would actually appeal to audiences that are being underserved right now, particularly in Central Asia, the Middle East, parts of Africa, which are not catered to by Western media, the French studios or the Hollywood studios or some of the Arabic language studios. So there is an opportunity here. I'm just not convinced that the Chinese are sophisticated enough in their entertainment marketing to do to execute well.
1: Mm. Mm. You know, one of the reasons one one of the ways that I might disagree from you is, I just have a lot of memories of being a little kid, and watching American stuff far from America. You know, clear American stuff made clearly for American audiences. Things you know, some of the action movies from the eighties, the kind of um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, for example, like there were so many coded messages in there, and uh, not coded messages, actually, like direct appeals to American patriotism, you know, like these kind of like, like payoff lines, like, you know, uh, the only one, the one that kind of jumps to mind is this is this is our Independence Day, in Independence Day, um, for example, you know, those kind of things that really are designed to make an American audience cheer. I grew up with them appealing in complicated Ways to people who are not American, so I can imagine that it it's not impossible for the Chinese to pull off as the same thing to make people, you know, like to, to use the architecture of movie storytelling to just like elicit this kind of emotional response the, the way that any movie does. So I, I you know, it, 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 in in certain kind of ways, looking at the new the new Chinese action movies, they feel like Hollywood movies, in, in, in that way as well, that in that kind of appeal to its domestic mass audience and appeal to patriotism.
0: So there is one fundamental difference between the American movies that you're talking about and what the Chinese are producing. The American movies were not obligated to adhere to certain core ideological principles. And the Chinese have an obligation with each one of these movies to make sure that they adhere to core socialist principles. That is a mandate from the Communist Party and that is an inherent contradiction in storytelling and this is something that uh, professor Stanley Rosen out of the University of Southern California who's an expert on Chinese filmmaking he talks about a lot and one of the limitations of chinese movie making and storytelling in order to reach foreign audiences are these tight ideological straitjackets that they must put their storylines through and everything must go through the what's called SARFT the state administration of radio film and television and that is the ideological and censorship bodies that really purify Content in order to make it adaptable for uh, a Chinese audience. That doesn't translate that well to an international audience. And also don't confuse the the Jackie Chan movies and the Jet Li movies that come out of Hong Kong with the movies that come out of mainland China. And oftentimes people see them as just Chinese. So in that's culture in that sense, those Kung Fu movies that we've talked about with you, you know, last year we talked about that, and the popularity of those in Africa, those will continue to do exceptionally well. And if the Chinese are smart, they will absolutely leverage that existing pipeline of content related to kung fu martial arts that people love around the world and build on that uh, but in terms of adhering to core socialist principles that must actually be integrated into the storylines, I think that's going to be a very tough sell. Final thoughts from you, Kobus.
1: you know uh, it's you know again I, it's interesting to look at this from the south, from the global south and to see it you know kind of as, as you know as, as different kind of global north powers you know, kind of jockeying for position in, in the global entertainment market, because I agree with you, obviously, that Hollywood works with a with a, with a very different set of, of legal constraints. Um, but at the same time, I don't know that Hollywood necessarily has that much more freedom to say exactly what they want. Because, I mean, obviously, officially, they, they, you know, they don't have nearly the kind of government control that Chinese filmmakers are dealing with, of course. But at the same time, I mean, imagine imagine any kind of, you know, even in a contemporary a contemporary kind of action, action movie, um, the hero, you know, calling for or, you know, saying we're, you know, kind of marching forward towards a worker's paradise of complete parity. For example, I mean, there's certain things that are impossible to say in a Hollywood movie, just as there are certain things that are impossible to say in a Chinese movie, especially one with government support. Um, so, you know, it, it, in, in that sense, they, they do it does from the South sometimes seem like two dueling official messages rather than one that's radically state controlled and another one that's radically free.
0: To, uh, to a point I'll agree with you, but there's one point that I'm going to really challenge you on, which is the definition of what Hollywood is today. Hollywood is no longer the studios. God, they wish it was just the studios, but it's not anymore.
1: And it's not necessarily American.
0: And it's not necessarily American, but it is Netflix. Yeah. It is Hulu. It is Amazon. We are in a golden era right now of content. And I have been surprised about the diversity of content that's coming out of these different online streaming providers. So I think that we are in a different era now in terms of the narratives coming out of the United States. And as you pointed out, it's not just coming out of the United States anymore. It's coming from all different places. Netflix, of course, is funding billions of dollars of production around the world. So we're getting Indian movies from Netflix, uh, Vietnamese, U.S., all over the world, French. And so I think that also makes it uh, a lot more difficult to pigeonhole what's coming out of the West. So, well, that'll do it. We'll talk about this subject going forward, uh, again, only because the, the cultural side of the Belt and Road is one that is underexplored. Everybody talks about the political and the economic part of it, but Belton Road is something that is going to transform so many different parts of the societies that this trade route is going to go through simply because of the vast amounts of money that are flowing through it. So we'll continue to try to look at some different aspects of it, particularly as it relates to Africa, uh, but also to kind of broaden the discussion to talk about Belt and Road uh, in terms of where it's happening and where it's shaping so that we'll have an impact on Africa, of course, being shaped by officials in Beijing. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander for Kobus Staden. We'll be back again next week with another show. Thanks so much for listening.